0: How's it going, everybody? My name is Christian Wagner, and I'm the Militant Thomist. So we're coming at you with a bit um, of an unusual stream today. I will just be responding to a single tweet uh, by Owen Strachan. Um, Those of you who aren't familiar, and I'm not even sure I'm spelling his name, I mean, uh, saying his name right. uh, He is a Baptist. He's pretty popular. got 54,000 followers here and he is known for his absolute hatred of Thomism. so he made a certain statement about the love and wrath of god which were extremely irresponsible and extremely incorrect many have been pointing out issues that he has with simplicity but that is not actually my concern with this tweet and i'm about to pull it up for you guys real quick I just share my screen. Okay, there you go. So he says, The wrath of God, like the love of God, is anything but an anthropomorphic state. The wrath of God, second only to the love of God, is the strongest force in existence. So, can you guys spot the error? Let's see if anybody, we have any smart cookies over there in the stream. What is wrong with uh, this tweet right here? Anyone? Okay, I'll give you the answer. It's this first sentence right here. The wrath of God, like the love of God, is anything but an anthropomorphic state. Well, what's wrong with that, Christian? This right here. He's denying that it's anthropomorphic. Uh, so she Alex says, real distinction between wrath and love. Dude doesn't get divine simplicity. That's not my that's not my issue, guys. Although that is obviously an issue with this, there can still be um, logical distinctions made within the divine attributes. So I mean, a charitable reading would be that. But what he's explicitly saying here is that wrath is not anthropomorphic and if you don't understand that language of anthropomorphic that is a reformed way of saying analogous so he is not saying he is saying that we are to take the wrath of god in its proper rather than its improper sense and this right here is a massive error and it's really on two counts first we are supposed to deny of the created imperfection of wrath the idea that it's a passion And second, we are to deny of the created imperfection of wrath. We are are supposed to deny it um, in its proper sense. So rather than being its own attribute, when we talk about the wrath of God, we're saying that it's the love of God in relation to a certain object. And that object is sin. So it's not to be taken in its proper sense. And while I'm sure Owen Strachan doesn't speak in these categories... He did affirm right here clearly that it's not supposed to be something analogous, but it's supposed to be taken in its proper sense. So what I'm going to do right over here, boom, Summa Contra Gentiles, book one, chapter 91. This, is, this will really put this to rest and see what the Catholic tradition has actually said when it comes to the wrath of God. Let me see where it begins, Begins right here, I believe, as he starts out like he usually does in the. Let me move my laptop; it's obscuring my screen. So, it begins with just a series of proofs. Let me see. Okay. where where is it okay i think it begins sorry guys it begins here okay i'll just start reading here we'll see where we go okay accordingly it must be observed that while other operations of the soul are about one object only Love alone appears to be directed to a twofold object. For if we understand or rejoice, it follows that we are referred somehow to some object, whereas love wills something to someone, since we are said to love that to which we will some good in an aforesaid way. So he's defining love right here, which is going to be very important going forward. So love is that which we will some good to someone. Hence, when we want a thing, we are said simply and improperly to desire it and not to love it, but rather to love ourselves for whom we want it. Consequently, we are said to love it accidentally and improperly. Accordingly, other operations are greater or lesser in proportion to the energy alone of the action. This cannot apply to God, because the energy of action is measured by the force from which it proceeds, and every divine action is one and the same force. On the other hand... Love may be greater or lesser in two ways. In one way, as regards the good that we will someone, according to which we are said to love that person more for whom we will a greater good. In another way, as regards the energy of the action, according to which we are said to love that person more for whom, although we will not a greater good. Nevertheless, we will an equal good with greater fervor and efficacy. In the first way... Accordingly, nothing forbids us to say that God loves one thing more than another, according as he wills it for a greater good. But in the second way, this cannot be said for the same reason as we have stated in the case of the operations. It's kind of hot here. I'm going to open the window. Okay, so he's laying down some theory here. And those things that we are even supposed to deny of love, because love in a, in a creaturely sense as some created imperfections such as we love one thing more fervently than another in the energy of our action whereas god's energy of action is is the same for all things although we might be we may be able to say that god loves one thing more than another because of the different th- objects that he wills us It is therefore clear from what has been said that none of our emotions, properly speaking, can be in God except joy and love. And yet even these are not in him as they are in us by way of passion. Okay. So joy and love are those only um, proper emotions which we can attribute to God. And when we speak of an emotion in God, we're not talking about it as a way of passion, like, um, like, for example, uh, if I were to say to fall in love with somebody, if I fell in love with my wife, that would be a certain passion. There's a, uh, a bubbling up of that emotion, and a going from potency to where I potentially loved her to act to where I actually loved her. And where it's, uh, think of uh, the idea of somebody being passionate. That is that is what we're denying of God. We're not denying that that uh, steadfast will to will the good of another, which is the um, which is the essence of love, which we share with God. So, while we may properly say that God is joy and love, we have to deny the mode, which is way of passion, and with the other emotions. They are not properly speaking in God. Why is that? Well, we'll find out. That joy or delight is in God is confirmed by the authority of Scripture, for it is said in the psalm, in your right hand or delights forevermore. Divine wisdom, which is in God as we have proved, says, I was delighted every day playing before him, and there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Also, the philosopher says in 7 Ethics 4, eight that God rejoices with one simple delight. Scripture also makes mention of God's love. Okay, blah, blah, blah. We already know that. It must, however, be observed that even other emotions which by their specific nature are inapplicable to God are applied to God in sacred scripture, not indeed properly as we have shown. I'm going to go back to uh, chapter 89 after we're done talking about love because love is really going to um, love is going to frame the rest of this discussion. But metaphorically, on account of a likeness either of effects or of some preceding emotion, so we do not say that God, properly speaking, is wrathful; rather, that is metaphorical on account of the likeness of our wrath. Because when we're wrath, wrathful, we uh, inflict some evil upon another. Now, God metaphorically can say to be wrathful in that he inflicts judgment on sin. But again, it's not something which is proper. It, it's, as he would say, an anthropomorphism. Okay, and then I think... Oh, here, here it goes. I say of effects because sometimes his will, by the ordering of his wisdom, tends to an effect to which a person is inclined through a defective passion. Thus, a judge punishes out of justice as an angry man out of anger. Accordingly, sometimes God is said to be angry insofar as by the ordering of his wisdom, he wills to punish someone. According to the saying of the psalmist, wrath is quickly kindled. There we go there are certain created imperfections that are included in our idea of God being wrathful. We need to remove those such as the fact that it's a passion, the fact that something is an object of our hatred and such. And when we remove those created imperfections, the analogy, which is, which is being made in God is that of the ordering of his wisdom, wherein he wills to punish someone. And then further, he is said to be merciful insofar as out of his goodwill, he removes man's unhappiness, even as we do the same through the passion of mercy. So, oops. So right here, there's also that idea of mercy. Even um, even mercy, insofar as mercy is a passion, because um, think more of mercy as feeling bad for someone. That That's more of the idea of mercy. Uh, that that he is using rather than our colloquial sense of mercy but the feeling bad that is attributed to god for someone is rather his love towards them in that he removes man's unhappiness he has that rather than passion he has that inclination it's important to think of these rather than passions as inclinations towards acts in an analogous sense of course Hence, the psalm says the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Sometimes also he is said to repent. So again, we attribute repentance to God improperly. Insofar as in accordance with the eternal and unchangeable decree of his providence, he makes what he destroyed before or destroys what he previously made, even as those who are moved by repentance are wont to do. So when we repent of something, like for example, let's say I... um some guy was talking about my deer today. Let's say I repent of of killing my deer. I repent of the fact that I'm a hunter, which I would never do. I repent of that. Therefore, I stop that action, which I have of hunting. Rather than that previous action, which I had of hunting, I stop that action. Now, when we're speaking of repentance in God, obviously there's certain imperfections of my repenting because I would say that what I previously did was wrong and it's a change of my plans and a change of my passions and a change of my acts and such. But with God, when he is said to repent, rather his unchangeable decree of providence is what is changed. So think about it in the case of the flood. When God is said to repent, it wasn't surprise, surprising to him that, um, that man fell into sin or or, or anything like that. But rather his repentance is found in the destruction of his previous works. But that wasn't a change in God because that was always in his eternal decree. That's what we say when we mean that God repents. And then let's keep going on. I also say on account of a likeness to preceding emotion. For love and joy which are in God properly are the principles of all the emotions. Look at this. Love by way of moving principle, joy by way of end. So when we talk about certain emotions that are improperly said of God, that are not love and joy, we always have them in reference of love and joy as principles. Love moving it and joy the end or final cause of it. So when we think of wrath, how is that included in love? How would that be included in love? Well, there is the love that God has for himself, the love that he has for good, the love that he has for being, the love that he has for all of these things. That is that motivating principle towards the removal of some evil or towards judgment, which is improperly said to be wrath. And then the end of that is his joy in the fact that there is no wrath. So this is a much different way in which obviously we speak of our own wrath. When you are wrathful out there, when you get angry with somebody, do you have love as your moving principle and joy as your end? No, because we have very imperfect wrath. But when we speak of God's wrath, there is many negations which we go through. We negate those imperfections in our human experience of wrath. And we come out with this, this nucleus of perfections. And then we shoot it up to its eminence. We shoot up to its eminent perfection, perfections. And that is how we reference these creaturely perfections to God. So therefore, even an angry man rejoices while punishing as having obtained his end. Hence, God is said to grieve in so far as certain things occur to those he loves and approves, even as we grieve for what has happened in our will. Okay, and then I thought this final paragraph was interesting. By what has been said, we can refruit the error of certain Jews who ascribe to God anger, sorrow, repentance, and all such passions in their proper sense, failing to determine between the proper and metaphorical expressions of scripture. So I think this is an important point to make before we continue and go back to 89 i think it was sorry i should have prepared a bit better in saving my tabs but what is important is how are we to know how are we to know whether scripture is speaking of a proper or a metaphorical expression towards god for example it says that in first john god is love It also says that God is a rock. So how do we know that God is love is a proper expression of scripture, and that God is a rock is a metaphorical expression of scripture? How are we to know? Well, I'm going to tell you. When it comes through those, when we analyze the predicates, which are predicated to God, we must ask ourselves, what are the perfections, and what are the imperfections? So, when it comes to love, love is a pure perfection. No imperfections in love, except in in a sense you can speak of the way in which, the mode of loving in which we have. You can speak of that being an imperfection which we deny of God. And then other expressions are going to be very low in those in in that nucleus of perfections. Can be very very tiny, like a rock. There's plenty of imperfections about a rock. A rock is finite. A rock does not even have a soul, and, and and so on and so on and so forth. There's many imperfections which we speak of a rock. Therefore, when it comes to love, it's pretty obvious that it's proper. And when it comes to a rock, it's pretty obvious that it's metaphorical. But what happens with those other statements in Scripture, such as God repents, God is angry, uh, and, and the like? Well, um, we have to look at the, uh, we have to look at the uniformity with the rest of the attributes of God. And this comes both from natural revelation, where we can know that, for example, God is pure act, that God is immutable and, and, and so and so forth. God is simple and, and such. And also from the other clearly proper statements of scripture. So when it comes to God's, whatever you want to call it, hatred, anger, wrath, well we can predicate them to God in a certain sense, it's always going to be an improper predication because of the fact that we already know through a proper predication that God has love. So... So that is that is kind of how you how you navigate these various predications of scripture. Okay, now let's go up to 89 where he more directly covers this, if I'm remembering correctly. Okay, ooh, yes. This is good. This So, okay, chapter 89, that the passions of the appetite are not in God. Okay, and then I think, okay, so right here, this very important, I think that's all in here, very important three paragraphs right here. Accordingly, all passions by reason of its genus is absent from God. Well, what do you mean reason of genus? Well, genus is that general category which we have. And then also um, there's the species which go under that, those categories. For example, if we think of mankind, mankind is a or humanity is a genus. And then I am a certain individualization or species of that genus. So in general, because of the defects that come along with having a passion, for example, um, God would have to go from potency to act or from potentially having something to having something that we have to deny these imperfections in the genus. And that would include... Um, The fact that it's a passionate passion, because it's really hard to translate these concepts of passions and emotions and stuff like that into our into our modern lingo. Okay, but we have another category. Some passions, however, absent from God, not only by reason of their genus, but also on account of their species. So while we deny all passions of God, we also have a second level of denial. So there's some, for example, love can be spoken of as a passion. So when God, we speak of non-passionate love. But also we can go a step further and have some of these under that genus, which we also are going to deny the imperfections of. For example, like wrath. For every passion takes its species from its object. So when we are regarding the passions, we're talking about those things towards which the passions are acting. For example, wrath would have um, its object in evil. Uh, Love would have its object in will and good for another, and, and so on and so forth. Therefore, a passion whose object is wholly befitting God is absent from God on account of its proper species. So not only are we denying the mode, which is this whole genus thing, but some we also deny the object. Such a passion is sorrow or pain its object is an actually inherent evil we're going to deny sorrow and pain of god just as the object of joy is a good present and possessed so we affirm joy of god sorrow therefore and pain by their very nature cannot be in god i feel like there was another thing i feel like there was oh yeah 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 here we go. So again, the formality of a passion's object is taken not only from good or evil, but also from the fact that a person is referred in some mode to the one or the other. For thus, is that hope or joy differ? So when it comes to our passions, passions are can be split into two categories. Those referred to good, those referred to evil. So things like love, which would be willing a good for another, or joy, which could be said to be delighting in a good... Um, or And then on the other hand, we can have those things directed towards evil, which are really just the flip side of the good ones. So wrath is, is, is against a certain evil, and anger is against a certain evil, and repentance is turning back from a certain evil towards a good, and so on and so forth. And then we specify them even more when it comes to the mode. So joy would have, a, have, a, have, at as, have as its uh, mode passion towards a present object and then love would have toward in its mode a passion towards giving uh, good towards its a uh, towards a certain object therefore if the mode in which a person is referred to the object that mode being essential to the passion is not becoming to god neither can the passion be becoming to god in this by reason of its proper species so there's a few more layers to thinking about passion than god got to think about the the fact that the genus which is the general category of passion has to be rejected then on the second level we have to look at the the um the mode in which this is done uh, and then on the third level we have to think about the object and when we're treating the passions we go through these three layers So it's not as simple as just saying it's not an anthropomorphism and we properly say that God has wrath in the same sense that I have wrath. No, he doesn't. He does not. And as we're going to see, Thomas says that anger is furthest removed from God in this section. Now, although hope has a good for its object, this good cannot already acquired, but is not yet obtained. And this cannot be competent to God on account of his perfection, which is so great and nothing can be added to it. Hope, therefore, cannot be in God, even by reason of species, nor again desire or nothing possessed. So God cannot hope. Why can God not hope? This is going to give us a little bit of a catesis down here um, on, on how we think about the passion. So this is going to be very helpful. So the reason that we cannot say that God hopes is because when you think about what the object of hope is, the object of hope is a future good. Well, God has the plenitude of good. Therefore, we deny that, um, that God hopes in the sense that we hope. Although God can be said to hope um, in a different sense, but I won't get to that now. That would make this video way too long. Moreover, just as the divine perfection excludes from God the potency of acquiring any additional good, so too and much more it excludes the potency to evil. Now fear regards evil that may be imminent, even as hope regards a good to be acquired. Therefore, fear by reason of its species is absent from God on two counts, both because it is befitting, only that it is in potency, because its object is an evil that can be present. So now we go to the idea of fear. So hope, we only denied it on one part. Having as its object a good is okay, but we're going to deny it on the fact that it's a future good. Now when we have fear we're denying it on two levels first because it's a future evil and second because it's an evil because God cannot be inflicted by any evil and then nothing is going to be future which is going to actualize God's being. So we're denying we're denying um, fear on two counts. Can okay, I have a question? Justin, the Catholic are you familiar with Shingenis' work on this topic. No, but, um, if you send me a link, I'd be happy to, to go over, uh, some of his videos. I think that would be helpful to do some response. Well, actually it's not entirely, entirely right that I'm not familiar at all with it. I think I saw like a reason in theology or something stream on it, but I'm not like super familiar with it is what I meant. Okay. Again. So now we're thinking of repentance. Repentance denotes a change in the appetite. Therefore, the idea of repentance is inapplicable to God, both because it is a kind of sorrow and because it implies a change of will. So now we're going even deeper. We have another two rejection one. First, because it is a kind of sorrow. That is that we don't have a present good. And second, because it implies a change of will. So we speak of God repenting. We neither speak of it as a sorrow, nor do we speak of it as the changing of the will. And notice throughout here, Thomas is den- not denying that any of these terms can be used, um, can be used to predicate to God. What he's denying is that they are used to properly predicate to God without all these negations that he's making. So I want to make that very clear, because this is a much more nuanced God, uh, much more nuanced view than both the kind of pop classical Christian theist group, especially among Protestants. And then also the um, the passionate God, suffering God sort of way of thinking about things. Okay, further, without error in the cognitive power, it is impossible for that which is good to be apprehended as evil. Nor does it happen that the evil of one can be the good of another, save in particular goods, in which the corruption is one, Corruption of one is the generation of another, but the universal good is impaired in no way by any particular good, but is reflected by each one. Now God is universal good, and by partaking of His likeness, all things are said to be good. Hence, no one's evil can be to Him a good, nor is it possible for Him to apprehend as evil that which is good simply and is not evil to Him, because His knowledge is without error, as we have proved above. Hence, envy cannot be cannot be possibly being God even accord to the nature of the species, not only because envy is a kind of sorrow, but because it grieves for the good of another, and thus it looks upon the good of another as a will. So when we speak of the envy of God, there's three negations. First, because it's a kind of sorrow. Second, because it grieves at the good of another. And third, because it makes out another's good as evil. So we're going even further down into denying uh, making negations of these passions. okay now we get to the last you get to the absolute last and what is it? what what attribute or passion can we most deny of God? What has the most negations included in it? Well it's Owen Strachan's anger. It's his anger or as we would or as he said it wrath. We speak least in God of his wrath. We have to make the most negations when it comes to the idea of wrath. Very important in understanding and having a much healthier view of a class, classic Christian theistic view of God than um, is either making God a stone or is making God a moody 12-year-old boy like um, like some people make him out to be. Okay. So Justin the Catholic, and I, and I just left you with all of that suspense, but... <laughs> Justin the Catholic had another statement so he wrote a book about it the immutable God that can change his mind the impassable God that has emotions oh gosh his basic thesis that you can't sacrifice scripture on the altar of Aristotelian philosophy oh gosh and again I think especially with that thesis, the hermeneutical principles are most important is the fact that scripture can make certain improper statements of God where we have to negate. So he is taking a extremely literalist view of reading scripture that's denying that there are any improper statements made of God. I'd like to see if there's a video on that or something so I could explain this all in a bit more detail. Okay. Okay. Now, let's get it. We're at anger right now. We're at wrath. We're at our our final, final goal. Thank you guys for sticking on so we can get all that theory in beforehand. Okay. Again, to grieve for a good is the same as desiring an evil. For the former results from a good being deemed evil, while the latter results from an evil being deemed good. Now, anger is the desire of another's evil in revenge. So think about what wrath is for you. Wrath is for you wanting evil for another. Wanting evil for another. Included in our idea of wrath is the fact that we are desiring evil. You see the problem yet? Do you see the problem yet? therefore anger is far removed from god according to its specific nature not only because it is an effect of sorrow so effect it'll be denied on one count and then we also denied on all the other accounts above so we're at three negations right here but also because it is a desire for revenge on account of ar- sorrow arising from harm afflicted so first we desire that we Deny that there's desires. Second, we deny that it's revenge. We deny that it's sorrow. We we deny that harm is inflicted. And we deny that God desires evil. So really, we're just negation after negation after negation. So what we come from in negating all of those various ways in which we have imperfectly wrath, we come out with an improper predication of wrath. And the nucleus of that, which we eminently ascribe to God, is the fact that God punishes the wicked. That's all Raph is talking about. The fact that God punishes the wicked. It's not talking about some moody passion of bubbling up anger that, that's in God. Or a powerful force, as as Owen likes to say. Okay. So the other Paul asks where do you think scripture makes improper statements of God? Do you mean the author themselves or whom they quote? No, I should have explained that a bit more, but I'm talking about the very nature of language. So for example, when we say that God is a rock by rock, that is a metaphorical statement and thus is called improper. Or it's, it's kind of more um, in the lines of, if you understand it this way of being an idiomatic expression or a metaphorical expression or, or, or something of that like it's that it is affirming something as true, but it's not affirming something as true in the same sense that, um, that we affirm it is true. For example, we talk about God's uh, right arm. It's not proper. We're not speaking of God having a fleshy right arm, which is, which is hanging off of him. We're not. We're denying multiple uh, aspects of imperfection that's included in a right arm. For example, that it's finite, that it's human, that it's material, et cetera, et cetera. And we're affirming the perfection that is included under the idea of right arm. Which is the fact that God is powerful in saving His people, which is the idea included under right arm. Therefore, it's called an improper statement, and I, I understand that that can be a bit of a um a bit of a tricky concept. So keep uh, if if you have any more questions, then uh... okay. Oh. The other Paul says improper in a very technical sense, not a negative sense. Yeah, I'm not talking about improper in the sense that um, it's uh, inappropriate. I'm saying improper in the sense that we're not to understand it after um, the natural meaning of those words. Yikes, man. I hope that uh, people don't clip me at the beginning of this video and think that I deny an or something. Yeesh. Benjamin, God is wrath. So the question is, what do you mean by wrath? <laughs> because from, from the sake of di- divine simplicity and the fact that uh, if I remove those created imperfections that are included under our concept of wrath, yeah, God is wrath. And the fact that um, God has that inclination towards the punishing of evil. So yes. So is Aristotle's definitions of emotions correct? Is it a power of the intellect of a... Psych- of a physiological reaction yes 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 that's exactly and especially that part about it being physiological is a main driving force behind the doctrine of impassibility um, in the early and medieval church especially because it's a, there's a physiological effect that's bubbling up so um the soul itself will become impassable when we're separated from the body um between our death and then the bodily resurrection. For example, angels are impassable and and the like. Okay. Okay, Justin. There is a difference between those passages and passages describing the state of God in historical context, i.e. Sodom and Gomorrah. What do you mean? Is God being described as a rock? Is um, is is talking specifically about His uh, sustenance of um, the people in the forty years in the desert? So I, I don't understand what you mean there. I'm not saying that you're wrong. I'm just saying I'm not understanding the statement. So we're thinking about Sodom and Gomorrah, um, the fact that God was wrathful or that God hated Sodom and Gomorrah. Yes, we can speak in that way. But um, so this is more of a question of no, nobody's denying that we can say that God is wrathful. Everybody's affirming that. But we are what we are denying is what Owen said here, that it is not an anthropomorphic state. Or that it's taken according to its proper sense. It's really a debate over what it means, um, what the word wrath means in relation to God. Because you have this disconnect between human language and divine realities. So when we're describing um, the relationship between human language and divine realities, obviously there's not going to be a univocal uh, one-to-one way of way of going about things there's going to be some things that are said of god that are true but they're not true in this in in, in any univocal sense but in an analogical sense and i have a video on that if any of you are, are interested let me try to find that real quick i'll put it in the chat about the link lang- how we use language in regard to god and also throw in any other questions you may have while i look for this Oh, I'm at 699 subscribers. If any of you are listening right now, please subscribe to my channel so I can hit 400. That that, that triggers me so bad that I'm at 699. Okay, where is it? Looking, looking, looking. I think it was an older video. Dang, did I, I guess I kind of, in this video, yeah, get out of your ad. this video, I talked about divine impassibility. Okay. And then I'll have an art. Oh, that's what I did. I have an article. Yes. I have an article in analogous language. That's pretty short, very helpful. Let me grab that for you guys. How to speak about God. There it is. Yes. Okay. There. So if you have any, if you want to look into this further, I mean, obviously, summa contra gentiles around these questions are good. Let me see if he covers it in the compendium. I think he does. The compendium is also another great tool. This is Aquinas.cc, if you're wondering. It works better on a computer, so you can't really use it on your phone. Um, let me see. Yet another reason why we deny passions of God is because uh, what you said, that um, passions are intrinsically uh, connected with um bodily senses and a physiological reaction which are obviously not found in god because he doesn't have a body okay um are there none in here man come on thomas okay never mind summa contra it is for you guys okay i'm gonna oh wait apparently i'm at 700 right now. Wait. Let me check. Yep, I'm at 700. There you go. Watch somebody uh, just unsubscribe. Okay. Let's see. So Justin says, Jenis is a pretty solid apologist in my opinion. Love to see who engage his work on this topic. Yeah, I think that'd be fun. Um, I think he's generally trying to exhale scripture more than it is in Catholicism at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. That is, I'm going to stop sharing my screen. Yeah. That is a definitely a huge problem is the disconnect, uh, from the biblical text, but also we need proper, um, the pun intended because I just talked about properness a lot. We need have proper hermeneutics, especially when it comes to such a difficult issue about how the biblical text and its statements about God relate to, um, relate to the essence of god and uh it well nature of god would be a better way of talking about it so how do the statements made in human language relate to the nature of god and that's not something you're going to get uh directly from the biblical text that's something assumed that's something which is investigated in what's called prolegomena so if you want to if you want to be a literalist, then you're going to have to philosophically prove to me that literalism is the best way to read the text, especially when it comes to the ways in which we predicate certain attributes to God. So, yeah. And Justin Catholic has to go. I should probably go too. I should probably have some time between now and tonight's chill stream. That that reminds you guys um, chill stream tonight at 730. I know we had a bit of a chill stream last night, but uh, that was kind of that didn't count. That was a special episode for my... M- oh, yeah, my mug. Yeah, everybody buy a mug. Um. Dang. Where did I put my... In the chat right now. And I'm flying by the seat of my pants this stream. I'm sorry, guys. Don't mean to waste your time. Okay. Get a mug. Be the coolest guy ever. Can't wait until mine comes in. Man, I post way too much on Twitter. I wish I had the link saved. Sorry about this, guys. This is super embarrassing. Okay. $19.99 to get the finest mug you have ever. Yeah, I found out how to buy my mug. (laughs) So that, yes, buy a mug. Um, Also, uh, subscribe. Um, Get ready for that stream later tonight. Um, And then... If you want to follow me on social media, the Discord also um, can be found in my link tree, uh, link.tree slash Apology something like that. You should be able to find in the description to uh, the video if you're re watching. Okay, that's all I have for you. I will talk to you guys later, and I appreciate all of you. Um, become a patron. Forgot about that one. And God bless. No.